Hey there, and welcome to the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy. Each week, we'll lean in and learn together what it means to live it well. Yeah, and you're going to hear from some amazing inspirational leaders, mentors, and friends that have impacted our life on a personal level. Leaders like John Eldridge. You've got to know your story. What was it I once dreamed of? Suzanne Stabile. Once we can accept our difference, we can find what we hold in common. And Aaron Nequist. We want to be a community that doesn't just believe things about Jesus, but learns how to rearrange our lives to put his words into practice for the sake of the world. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad you're here. Let's get started. On today's episode, we're chatting with our new friend, Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan's an incredibly successful faith and culture writer who's published in more than 3,000 articles from outlets such as the New York Times, USA Today, Washington Post, and CNN. Yeah, we chat with Jonathan about his journey moving from the Bible Belt Mm. to New York City (laughs) and how he found himself kind of wrestling to engage with people in spiritual conversations who really had no context of God or Christianity whatsoever. You know, we think you're going to be super encouraged by this conversation. I know it was for us. And if you've ever found yourself in that kind of in-between season where you're really wrestling some things out, or maybe you're just walking with someone else who is, this conversation is definitely for you. Yeah, we were so encouraged by it, and we can't wait for you to hear it. So let's jump in. Enjoy. All right, well, guys, we're here with Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Man, we were really, really excited, and we're excited to jump into your book and hear all about that because the conversation that's happening there is super important. But before we do that, uh, just give our listeners an opportunity to, to get to know you a little bit. Who you are, where you're from, what do you do? It's so funny when people ask that because it's like, where do you start? But it, it, my <laughs> counselor, my counselor always says that you spend the majority of your adult life sorting through what happens to you between age five and age 15. And so I always (laughs) try to give people like, because that's such a formative time in your life, I always try to start there. I grew up in the Bible Belt uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. I was the son of a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, He was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. He's a, a TV preacher and a mother who was just a quintessential nurturer. And uh, so that was kind of the world that I grew up in. It was very Southern and it was very Christian. Attended a Christian college and I got out of, um, it's so funny, I always tell people that every fork in the road for me was an intersection where the spirit kind of came into my life unannounced. And so I went to college and studied uh, biology and chemistry actually. And then went and worked for a Fortune 500 chemical company, didn't love it, was sort of burnout on it. And I was sitting in a cubicle looking there out over Interstate 85, and I just heard this voice inside me say, you're going to write. And I thought, I'm going to write. I'm not, I can't write. I'm, I have a degree in science. I've never written anything. <laughs> I, I didn't even take English in, in college. I clepped out of English. But I believe that it was true. I believed it was kind of that divine voice in my life. And so I packed everything up into a little box, quit my job, walked out, and just devoted my life to writing. And now that was 13 years ago. And so today, I'm a writer. Wow. 
That's incredible. And you don't live in Atlanta anymore, right? No, no. I moved a few years ago, almost five years ago. I'm coming up on, we call it our New York adversity. <laughs> so my New York adversity and uh, was living in Georgia. But again, you know, it's another one of those moments where I was, I was in New York uh, doing a press junket and I went to meet with a friend of mine who had moved from Atlanta as well. And I said, why did you move here? You've got three kids. Why would you move to New York City? And she said, you know, I think there comes in, in life, there are times where you hear a whisper. And it's a totally legitimate life decision to say no to the whisper. But if you do, that whisper will go away and it never comes back again. And, mm. I, you know, it mm. was like sand in my shoe. I got on <laughs> That's good. The, the plane and I thought of all my friends who they don't have the whisper anymore. They have a memory of the whisper. They say, I always wish I would have had kids or I always wish I would have a third kid or I always wish I would have finished my degree or I always wish I would have moved to New York. And I thought this just might be my whisper and I don't want it to go away and not come back again. And it, that was September the 13th. By November the 3rd, I had sold everything in my house. I had rented my house out, and I was in an Enterprise rent-a-car heading to New York City to live in an apartment I'd never seen with people I'd never met in a neighborhood I'd never heard of, and that was five years ago. That's amazing. <laughs> Good for you. Wow. Okay, yeah. so let's talk. Just take a second because, you know, there are some people here, obviously, that live in the Bible Belt and all over, but what were some of the biggest shifts for you that you noticed coming from the south moving up there to the northeast? You know, there were a lot of shifts. I think I was really braced for people said that New Yorkers are rude, they're brash, they're angry, they're mean, which is not true. You know, it would be like people people who say that they've really only been to like Times Square. It, that'd be like <laughs> saying you've been to Atlanta, but you've only visited Six Flags over Georgia. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get out into the neighborhoods, there is a communal nature and because it's broken up into neighborhoods, you depend on each other so much. You know, you don't have cars, most of us. So when it's snowing, we're all out there trudging, trying to kind of tame the iron wilderness. And it's difficult. And so the, the level of community I experienced there was sort of shocking. I think I was shocked by the level of spiritual community. You know, if you go to church, and you know this, you know, if you're in Atlanta or Nashville or wherever you are, Birmingham, there, there's a kind of still a, a cultural Christianity that animates things. You know, people will often ask you in the Deep South, not if you go to church, but where you go to church. Oh, yeah. And there's an assumption. And, and as a result, more people go to church because like that's what they were raised to do. They want their kids to grow up in church. They want to go there because their, their marriage is not working so well or whatever. And so they're, they're kind of driven into churches. That's not true uh, in New York City. Only 3% of our population is evangelical Protestant, which is what I was raised. Very few people go to church. So the people who go to church, they mean it. They are the real deal. And so it's almost like, you know, if you distill down your church to just the most passionate people and you crammed them all in a room on a Sunday, that's what I experience when I go to church in New York City. It's the people who really mean it. And it is one of the most, it, I, I say it's addition by subtraction. Mm. It is it is one of the most stunning things to be in a city that is so pluralistic so postmodern, so post-Christian, and to get together in a room of people who are so fired up for and sold out to Jesus, you can, mm -hmm. you can almost smell it, you can feel it when you walk in the room, and it is something, it rubs off on you. 
And uh, I've often said it's going to be the hardest thing when I leave New York because I don't know how I'm going to find that anywhere else. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I love it. So you go to, is it Trinity Grace? I've heard you yeah, talk about Okay. I go to Trinity Grace Church uh, in Tribeca. Okay. Okay. We experienced that. We went to Portland a couple weeks ago and experienced that at Bridgetown Church. It was the same thing. John Mark was like, look, if you're Christian here, you're you're the minority <laughs> for sure. Right. So Everyone find, feels grateful to have found each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah exa- that's exactly what you just said. It, it, it hits the nail on the head. We get there and we're like, oh, my people. Yes. <laughs> you're my people. Where have you been the, the last six days? And it is such a refreshing thing. Exactly. That's what I kept thinking too when you were talking about that. That just sounds so refreshing because I think what we can experience down here where it's just everyone is you're not sure who's really there because they love Jesus and want to know him and grow in him and who's just kind of like, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. I think that's so refreshing. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Learning to speak God from scratch. Tell us what what led you to write this book. Well, you know, we've already opened that door, so we might as well just drop let's kick just it over. Let's jump into um, it. I, when I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City, I experienced all the wonderful things that I just mentioned. But I also experienced this really frustrating thing where I ran into an unexpected language barrier. It wasn't that I could no longer speak English. I could still have conversations standing at an intersection with, with anybody. And I've always been that kind of person. But I could no longer speak God. And I mean that when I say, you know, not just strangers, because it's awkward to have a religious conversation with a stranger, but acquaintances, my barber, the guy in my co-working space, and even really good friends, the person who lived next door to me that we'd watch football games together, or they would have, you know, their uh, bachelor night. And it was like, as soon as things turned spiritual, they turned awkward. Hmm. Uh, And not always for them, but for me. Because I start using words and somebody would say, oh, yeah, you just said that, um, Grace. What does that mean? And I realized I've never stopped. And I bet most people listening to this, is, it's, it's true for them. There were words that I had used constantly, regularly, with impunity growing up in adolescence, in college, in grad school, in young adulthood. But I'd never stopped to ask myself, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And most people are like that. We, we, when we speak God, we're, we're sort of passive talkers. We talk about God, but we don't stop to think about what these words mean. And there, the late Dallas Willard once said that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. That, that you can talk about something so often, you don't know what it means anymore. I, I, you know, I, when I was in Atlanta, Atlanta's a commuting city, you drive and there were all these things, these beautiful buildings or beautiful parks or that tree that would turn those shades in the fall. But when you did that every day, there came a point where you didn't even notice those things anymore. Mm -hmm. And the linguistic version of that is speaking God, where we say, oh, bless your heart. (laughs) Or, you know, you use a phrase and then you say, yeah, but what do you mean when you say that? And you realize you didn't mean anything. It was you were going through the motions. And when you get into a culture like this, and you don't have to move to New York to experience this culture. A lot of people I know listening to this, wherever you are, you go into your workplace, 
you go into your PTA meeting, you go into your community group, and people aren't reading from the same script. They're not working from a common vocabulary anymore. You go into your Facebook page, and people are coming from diverse backgrounds, different races, and different religions, and different moral systems. And you have to then begin to reevaluate, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? And if you're not prepared to do that, what will happen to you is what will happen to me. You'll stop speaking God altogether. So good and so true. We find ourselves in those conversations over and over and over again, and sometimes we're just robotic, and it's the worst thing in the world. All right, well, I want to hear, I want to hear a story from you about experience you had, maybe up there when you moved to New York, that really shook you to the core, that kind of turned this message inside of you. Well, uh, I'll give you one example, and it 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 sort of um, illustrates one of the triggers that I think a lot of people listening to this experience one of the one of the strains in their everyday lives. Uh, I mentioned my barber a little while ago, and I love I love my barber Derek. If Derek ever listens to this, he'll be so proud that he he got a mention. Uh, but I love Derek, and uh, Derek. I remember the first time he was cutting my hair, he said. Uh, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a religion writer. And he said, oh my gosh. And that was always the question. You know, in New York, so success driven, people always ask, what do you do? And with me, then it was like I needed to give a trigger warning because I say I'm a religion writer. And then of course that leads into all these really odd questions. So people would say, like he did, well, what's a religion writer? And I'd say, well, you know, I cover faith and culture. And he said, uh, you know, I'm still pissed off about the way I was raised. And I said, and I could feel um, the hurt. And I said, "What happened?" And he said, "Well, I was raised out in the country, Southern Baptist, raised by some fundamentalist folks. You know anything about those kinds of people?" And I just kind of nodded my head. I thought, oh, "Gosh, I've heard of them." <laughs> I wasn't even going to disclose at that moment my background. And he said, "You know, what do you think about all that, like?" God and sin and hell and judgment and eternal life stuff. And I just thought, I have no idea. I said, that's a really good question. And I realized there were all kinds of things at that moment that I'd been taught, that I've accepted, that I believed in, but they had become so negative in connotation that I wasn't prepared to speak those words, that those words, they would get lodged in my throat. And there are a lot of people out there. I meet them. They come from all over this country. They're not just in the, in the United States. They live in a Rocky Mountain mi- mining town or a bungalow by the beach or a southern suburban gated neighborhood. And the same thing happens to them. They're things they believe, but they've taken on such a negative cultural connotation that they don't know how to speak those things in ways that don't make them feel embarrassed that they hold those beliefs to begin with. And so I realized there were all kinds of things then that I just put into a big lockbox and I shoved them into the top of the closet. And I said, I, I may believe those things. If you gave me a slip of paper, check yes or no, I'd say I'd check yes. But if somebody asked me about them, I just pled the fifth. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people who follow Jesus these days. It's something that really only affects their lives when they walk into a church and when they walk out, they think, I'm just going to leave that behind until next week. 
That's good. So one of the things you talk about that I love, Jonathan, is um, it's kind of about the freedom that comes from opening our hearts and minds to realize God is so much bigger than we can possibly wrap our brains around, and we don't have to have them all figured out. Unpack that a little bit more, the knowing versus the experience of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much of this, the, the tension that people experience when you talk about, like, what does it mean to speak about faith? They grew up in traditions, I find, where they there's so much anxiety around speaking God precisely mm-hmm. that they end up speaking God not at all. They think, well, I'm not a theologian. Right. I don't have a degree in religion. I haven't memorized the book of Romans. So <laughs> what if somebody asks a follow-up question? And what I say is, is that you have to shift from being comfortable with the periods to being comfortable with the question marks, that you can actually have confidence enough to speak one of the most holy phrases, which is, I don't know, what do you think? And I find that when you're able to speak that rather than to come up with an answer for everything, to instead embrace the mysteries of faith, it opens the door to conversation. So I, I often tell people to, to take time to, to, to really build that up. And it comes through an understanding of a sacred word that I didn't really encounter much growing up, which is the word mystery. You know, the scripture says it describes Christians as stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, I, I grew up thinking that you had to be stewards of the certainties of God, that you, everything you had to have an answer for. So you read all these books by people who wrote about apologetics so that you can kind of arm yourself with like flashcards, answers for all the difficult questions. And I have realized that so much of faith is speaking that holy I don't know to say that, you know, the mystery of God is not a code you crack. It is the infinite knowability, the infinite knowability of God that you know a little more and you know a little more and you know a little more And even though you're knowing more, you're no closer than knowing Mm -hmm. than you were to begin with, Mm -hmm. because God is infinitely knowable. And when you understand that faith is that way, when someone else has a question, you can embrace that question and be, be okay with that. You know, if you read the New Testament, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but approximately, Jesus was asked a little over 300 questions in the New Testament. He answered 18 of them. And Jesus asked more than 120 questions. Jesus was someone who knew that the life of faith is a life not just about having all the right answers, but also embracing the right questions, that questions are just as divine as answers, and that there is that holy liminal space between the question and the answer. You know, the ancient rabbis used to say, God is in the wrestling. We think God is in the figuring out. You go to Bible college, you go to Bible study, you, you get all the answers. Mm-hmm. But they say God actually shows up in the I don't knows, in the process between the question and the answer. And if you give people permission to wrestle, I think that that often liberates people to have conversations that they might not otherwise have. Mm, that's awesome. No, I love that. So good. I want to take a second and talk about something you said earlier, where you Talk about how the spirit kind of hit you and invaded your life. 
And how is that moment? Because we were talking about knowing, ultimately, this is a relationship, right? I think a lot of times it's a checkbox and we're trying, you said, trying to just figure out the words to be able to have a rebuttal with in a conversation. But tell me about your personal encounter. When you began to know God and were able to speak his language with him intimately, because I think that's the piece that's going to drive us to have the right conversations and the right heart people outside of our world. You know, people people have often said, oh, so you moved to New York and you became a liberal. <laughs> and I say, no, I wasn't even on that trajectory. It's it's not a, a process of becoming moving from conservative to liberal. It's a process of moving from being closed to open to the move of the spirit, to realize that God is bigger and better and that spirituality is wider and roomier than you thought it was and approaching God with an open handedness. You know, I often tell, I'll tell stories about when the spirit has kind of intersected my life and people go, yeah, the, the spirit doesn't talk to me like that or the spirit doesn't encounter me like that. And I think, well, that sort of assumes there's something special about me. There's nothing special about me. It's just that there has to be a willingness to be open-handed, mm-hmm. that oftentimes the Spirit is speaking and we have our fingers in our ears. Mm-hmm. And so for, for me, when I think about speaking God, there, there's a practice, and I have a whole chapter in this book on prayer. And for me, that process of prayer and the transforming that, learning to speak prayer from scratch, really changed everything. You know, Western Christians, when we want to encounter God, we make noise. We, we have a spiritual conversation. We preach a sermon. We sing a praise song or a, a hymn. We pray words. Uh, we make noise. Mm-hmm. Eastern Christians, and most of us are not as familiar with the practices that dominate in Eastern expressions of Christianity, they do the opposite. When they want to encounter God, they stop making noise. Mm-hmm. And I think about in my relationship with God, if if I treated my friends like I treat God, oftentimes my relationships wouldn't last long. They certainly wouldn't be very good. If I walked into a room and said everything I had to say to you and said, okay, see you later and walked out and never just sat and listened to what you had to say to me. And now imagine that you're as credible as God is. The person who's least credible did all the talking. And we find both of these expressions in the Bible. You know, the Bible will say, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But then the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. And you find both of these. And yet what I find is we often focus in our Christian traditions on one practice or the other. It's like going to the gym and always having leg day and never having arm day. Which who would pick that? I mean, let's be <laughs> let's be serious here. I had, I had leg day yesterday and I'll say I'll be the first to say not me. <laughs> not uh, it. But, but it's, it's learning to kind of balance out your spirituality. And so for me, when I think about speaking God, speaking God is an outflow. But you also need an inflow, an intake. And so if ever anybody's listening to this, they're saying, yes, yes, yes. I want to be equipped and empowered to go out and speak God more regularly and more confidently. I say, yes, yes. But also remember to make space in your own life for that intake to allow through your relationship with God, allow those words to come into your life so that they can flow out of your life. That's just, it's not only critical, it's indispensable. 
if you don't have the intake, you won't have the outflow. Right. Yeah. That's so good. And I think it's an important distinction to make is that you're not trying to train us to speak God so that we can just go out and have really intelligent conversations about God. You're trying to say, let's understand these words and understand the practices of these words so that we can grow closer to knowing God and experiencing God, right? Yes. Yeah, Each of uh, every divine word is a gateway. A word has no meaning. You know, I often will walk into rooms, I'll do presentations, and I'll say, how many of you are offended by the word sin? How many of you, when the word sin comes out of your mouth, you shrink back? How many of you would be afraid to say the word sin in mixed company around the water cooler? And by that time, everybody's hands up. And I say, actually, no one in this room is offended by the word sin. There's nothing about the letter S being situated next to the letter I, being situated next to the letter N, that is inherently offensive. It is the idea that has been put inside that word. A word's like an empty cardboard box that you put an idea inside of. And it's the idea that has been associated with that that for us is so difficult that we wrestle with, right? And so what I will tell people is it's that idea there that God lives in, that we, we encounter God in the idea of grace. We encounter God in the thing that that word points to. So whenever you speak these words, if you're just using the words, you're just moving boxes around the room. Well, that's not doing anything for you. It's taking time to unpack what is inside of the box. And that is where we encounter God. And so what I want to help people have in this book is a little bit of of a linguistic moving day. That we would sit around and find all the boxes that have sat in the corner and they've collected dust, either because they're too negative or because we've used them so often that we don't know what they mean anymore. And we would get together in communities and say, these are words that for hundreds of years have given life to Jesus followers. Why don't we take some time and unpack these boxes together? That's what it means to learn to speak God from scratch. I love it. You so much believe in it that the subtitle of the book is Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. So let's dive into some sacred words, some that are vanishing and some that we're looking at going, okay, how do we revive these? Well, uh, you know, I I mentioned one that I talked about in the book, which is uh, the, the word prayer. That's a big one. I'll pick another one because the second half of the book, you know, has like 19 Uh, 19 different essays on 19 different words. One of my favorite essays, because everybody can relate to this one, is the word blessed. I mean, look, if you're on social media, you have seen it, and it's been (laughs) reduced to this hashtag, hashtag blessed. And when you see it show up, it often shows up in um, something like this. This Christmas, uh, my hubby got me this beautiful Lexus that you see here wrapped in a Christmas bow, he loves me so much, hashtag blessed. <laughs> or, uh, this is me and the wife in Punta Cana for our 20th anniversary, hashtag blessed. Mm-hmm. And what you realize is, is that by, by narrowing that word to be external and materialistic, we exclude people from accessing that word. It doesn't mean that that word is not true, by the way, in, in some fashion, because uh, the Bible will often use the word blessed to talk about external realities, uh, that, that God often does bless us through things, 
and through relationships. But it often then has the effect of being minimized to privilege because there are a lot of people that see that and think, I I work the third shift at Arby's. I'll never have a new Lexus. I can't afford to take that kind of vacation. And what does that imply? Because if that's how God blesses, and God will never more, more than likely bless me in that way, does God love you more than God loves me? What I find is, is that when we speak uh, that way, and this is true of most of the words, we're speaking the truth, but not the whole truth, so help me God. That there are, are actually bigger and better ways to think about blessings that include everybody. What about that feeling of peace that passes all understanding? That is a blessing. Now that may not show up on an Instagram feed, but that is a blessing. What about that kind word that the coworker in the cubicle at the end of your row gave you the day that your husband walked out on you? What a blessing that is. We have to begin recovering ways of talking about blessings that are not just external, but often internal, that are not just materialistic, but that are often supernatural, that will help us create a way of understanding blessings that include everybody and not just some of us. And so what I try to do in this book with words like that is to take this word to critically kind of deconstruct it. But not just stop there, because that's when you become a cynic and a skeptic, and then you just hate everybody who puts their vacation on their Instagram feed or their new car. That's not what we want to do. We want to reconstruct to make space for both people so that both people can see that God is at work in your life this day and every day, pouring out blessings in ways that you may not even perceive. And so that's what I really try to do in a book. And that's in addition to the word uh, prayer, I try to do it there uh, with Mm. the word blessing. That's awesome. So let's get really practical. What are you hoping people take from this after they read it? And what's something practical they can do to move towards understanding and speaking God? You know what I do? I have in the back of the book, I have a how-to guide for seekers and speakers, and I have the speak method, which is kind of a five-step process. And rather than go through everyone and all the questions, what I'll tell you is I encourage people to do this in community. And that's difficult because we think of speaking as an individual act, but it's not. It's a, Speaking is almost always a communal act unless you're talking to yourself. Uh, in that case, <laughs> it's individual. But for most of us, it's a communal act, and it's intended to be. And, and speaking God from scratch is best done with people in small groups. I'm going to release uh, on my website for free, probably this week or next, a small group guide for people to kind of go through this book with their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers. And it can't, by the way, when I say small group, it can't just be your church small group. Because oftentimes when we gather in our churches, we're gathering just with people who think like us, who believe like us, who behave like us. Speaking God from scratch is best done in communities that are diverse and broad ranging. So that you get people together and you say, hey, let's talk about the word blessing. That's one of my favorite Uh, sacred words. Here's how I use that word. And then somebody sitting across from us who's on welfare, who's a single mom can say, 
let me tell you how that way of understanding blessings affects me. And we go, oh my gosh, I never thought about that before. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be time to reimagine this word in a way that could include you and make space for you too. Or somebody would say, let me tell you how this word affects me as a woman. Let me tell you how this word affects me as a person of color. Let me tell you how this word affects me as a person who doesn't come from the Christian tradition that you come from. And it's that kind of wrestling and reimagining that will breathe new life into these dying words that will, that will actually help us to revive the vocabulary of faith. And let me tell you, it is, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but maybe I'll have a little bit of gospel at the end of it. The bad news is, is that if current trends persist, Sacred words and spiritual conversations will be largely extinct in the United States by the end of our lifetimes. Only 7% of Americans say that they have spiritual conversations on a regular basis. Only one in eight practicing Christians say the same thing. These things are fading and they're dying fast. If you look at the usage of religious words and spiritual words in conversations in the English-speaking world, most of them have declined by 50% or more over the last century. So these things are fading and they're fading fast, but there is good news. There are ways to revive languages, and I would include the language of faith, that if we can begin sparking a movement in our own communities, whether you live in Nashville or New York City or you live in Pig's Knuckle, Arkansas or L.A., <laughs> that we would get together in communities with people that we interact with where we live, work and play. If we could begin speaking God from scratch with them, we could revive the vocabulary of faith in 21st century America. I absolutely believe it. That's awesome. Totally, totally agree. All right. Well, before we close this out, we'd like to ask three questions, kind of a rapid right. fire deal. You ready for this? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, so they go a little like this. What's a book that's changed your life? What's a habit that's changed your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? So let's start with the book. What's a book that's changed your life? Oh, man. What <laughs> is a book that has changed my life? I'll tell you um, one of the books that has changed my life is a book called it's called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And it's a book by a lady named Barbara Brown Taylor. And what she says is, is that oftentimes Christians in the West practice what she calls solar spirituality that focuses on the light, the light of God and the light of life. It, it essentially, essentially teaches us to get into the light as quickly as possible and stay in the light as long as possible, to stay on the mountaintop as long as possible and to get there as quickly as possible. And yet there are things that the psalmist learned in the valley of the shadow of death that he could never have learned on the mountaintop. And I think there are things that we can learn about God, about others and about ourselves in the darkness that we could never learn in the light. There are things that God will teach you when the light is off that God will not teach you when you're laying out in the sun. But the problem is, is we often miss those lessons because all of our energy in the darkness is expended, not on asking, God, what are you trying to teach me in the pitch blackness? It's instead focused on getting out of the darkness and into the light. And it has really taught me the spiritual discipline of stewarding the dark. You know, the, the, the book of Isaiah says, uh, God says, I am the God of the light and the darkness. 
God doesn't go away when you're in the darkness. God's just speaking new lessons, different lessons to you. And that has taught me to live in those dark times. You know what I'm realizing the older I get is there's a lot more darker times than there are light times often. And so you better learn how to steward those. So that book has radically changed uh, the way that I live in those those rhythms. So that would be a, a, a book that has changed me. I'd say a, a habit that has changed me is really the habit of practicing presence. And I don't just mean presence with others, but I mean practicing the returning to the present moment. That God is in the here and now, and I live so much of life in the past and in the future. And yet God has only given me right now. I, I could walk out this door and I could get run over by a Mack truck. And yet, I, you know, my dad will often say, son, uh, don't let tomorrow's rain clouds steal today's sunshine. And I think that's such a good saying. God's given me today's sunshine. God's given me this moment. And so often I end up regretting what could have happened and didn't happen yesterday or what did happen yesterday that I wished wouldn't have happened or making myself sick over what might happen, but what might not happen tomorrow, mm-hmm. that I lose the present moment. And so oftentimes I will stop, I will sit in the present moment, and I will feel what it means to be alive right now. And I will think about the gifts of today. And I have to do it now multiple times a day to just be mindful of what I'm thinking and feeling and experiencing right now. That yes, The scan may come back tomorrow and it may have news that you wish you did not have. But right now, you're living, you're breathing, you are existing. That is a gift. Do not rush past the gift of today to live in the bad news that might come tomorrow. And so that has been a huge, huge practice for me that I have to practice multiple times every single day. What would I tell my younger self? You know what I would tell my younger self? And and I don't know if this is helpful because I think oftentimes when people ask that question, they give themselves some wisdom that would help propel them to heights more quickly. But for me, you know, I had a childhood that was, that was kind of troubled and I feel like I've struggled a lot in life. And what I would say is it gets better. Because this moment is impermanent. It doesn't last forever. That the feelings that you feel will not last forever. If you're listening to this and you've got heartache over a breakup or a divorce or a wayward son or a daughter, if you're languishing because you lost your job or you're stuck in a job that you think you'll never get out of, or maybe you're single and you're waiting for that person to come into your life that you feel like maybe God's promised you, but you just think maybe they'll never show up. I'd say it gets better. Tomorrow will not be like today. If there's one thing that life teaches every single one of us, it's that tomorrow will not be like today. If you're tired today, you may be refreshed tomorrow. And so instead of believing the lie that this is the new normal, that this is all that there ever will be. I think instead I live in the hope of a God who deals in the business of transformation. I mean, God, the thing that God does best is work miracles. 
Mm-hmm. And if you look back over your life, if you take time to notice it, you will see that you're really just living from miracle to miracle to miracle and trust that it may not be this moment. It may not be this hour. It may not be today, but that miracle is coming. That new breath of the spirit will blow. And I think when you don't have that hope, it's easy to slip into these doldrums of depression and the, the, the rhythms of hopelessness. And so I would say, don't, don't worry, pal. It really does get better. It really does. That's awesome. So good. Well, man, thank you so much. All right. I know people are going to be listening going, okay, where do I find the book? Where do I follow Jonathan? Give us all that information. Well, you can find it, I would say, anywhere. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. You can go uh, to any, they, as they say, anywhere where fine books are sold. I don't know what that means. Where are the crappy books? I guess they're in the bargain bin. They're in the 99-cent bin down at Books A Million. But you can, you, can, uh, you can order it wherever books are sold. And if you want to connect with me, the best place to connect with all of my writing, my podcast, my YouTube short series that I'm doing, uh, you can go to jonathanmerritt.com. That's M-E-R-R-I-T-T.com. Perfect. Well, thank you again, man, for being here. What a great conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, friends. Well, that was was a lot of fun. That was so great. I love what he said. Don't rush past the gift of today to live in the fear of what might come tomorrow. That is good. I'm putting that one on the wall. Absolutely. (laughs) So So good. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. We hope that this episode blessed you and we'd love to hear from you. Take a minute and leave us a review on iTunes or come find us on social media. We love hearing how these conversations speak to you and inspire you. Also, you can find all the info for today's episode, all the books and links mentioned in our show notes over at our website, letsliveitwell.com. Well, that's a wrap for episode 37. We're going to close it out like we do every time. Remember, you only get one life. Live Live it well. well.